We have an icon, a legend here joining me on the show here at Sports and Hip Hop with DJ Mad Max, also known as the King of Rock, hip hop hey. icon, Daryl DMC McDaniels. DMC, what's going, what's going on, man? Oh, can't complain, man. Hipping and hopping and rocking and rolling. So you were you was the head guy at St. John's University Radio. That's right, yes. Really? Yeah. I think I've been there one time. Mm-hmm. I've been there one time and got interviewed. When was that? This was a couple of years ago. You remember it. Remember yes, it well. I remember <laughs> visiting. Yep, exactly. It was in the daytime I came. I probably wasn't there because I would remember it if you were there. No, but I don't think you was there. No, no, I wasn't there during that it time. Was this, uh, it, was, it was this younger kid that got me to come there. I met him. What did I mean? I met this guy. It was just a random interaction at a burger joint or something. <laughs> but pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show here today. I want to congratulate you on everything you've achieved in hip hop. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first with the major sneaker deals, the endorsement deals, first on American Bandstand, first on MTV. Groundbreaking for hip hop here. Groundbreaking. Well, thank you. Thank you for liking it and supporting it. Without the people loving the music, we would have never been able to accomplish those things. No. Congratulations <laughs> on your book, your children's book that you just released, To Daryl's Dream. How are you feeling about it? Because I know this is something that you could relate to the younger audience with because that you were picked on and bullied, especially going to private school. Oh, yes. My whole life was uh, kind of like miserable. <laughs> you know, I got, I got bullied, teased and picked on because I wore glasses. And until I round all my records about glasses being cool, you know what I'm saying? My whole life was, hey, four eyes, hey, binoculars, hey, telescope. You know what I'm saying? So I got teased, bullied, and picked on because I wore glasses. I got teased, bullied, and picked on because I went to Catholic school. Um, I was always on the honor roll, always a straight-A student. And then the other thing that added to it all until I found a guy named Craig Henry who was just like me and Michael Starks. I read comic books. So I wasn't the athlete. I wasn't the it guy. I wasn't hanging with all the so-called cool kids. I was this, you know, nerdy, geeky kid that the perception was everything that I got going on for me is worthless. But once hip hop came into my life and I was able to talk about those things proudly, I changed the scenario of that, that whole picture. So I just basically did the book because I wanted to communicate to the younger generation two things. You're perfect just the way you are, regardless of what people say. And with who you are, you could become and do anything that you want to do. That, 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 that's basically the main message behind the whole book and stuff like that. Because when you think about it, you know, I came into hip hop and hip hop for me was about keeping it real. You know, that, that but when I heard hip hop, it was a little different for Run because he saw hip hop being born in his in his living room because his brother Russell was already managing Curtis Blow, managing Jimmy Spicer, managing Houdini. Oh, Russell was one of the early party promoters. Like this is before records. Mm -hmm. So Run would come down the stairs at 12 years old and it was, you know, Grandmaster Flash and Curtis Blow laid out on the couch from the show last night. So he saw the opportunity for occupation and a career in, in the music. And especially once Curtis Blow was the first rapper signed to a major label, that was a whole nother thing. But for me, it was like, oh shoot, 
you could tell stories about who you are over music. So, you know, coming from the, being a kid that re read comic books, I was basically creating these adventures of my old man at school, kid Daryl McDaniels. But everything that I thought was going wrong with me, my glasses, me being a school kid, I was able to talk about those things, not only to empower myself, empower myself, but also influence other kids or other people who was in the same situation as me. So hip hop was a, a superpower for me. That's right. And how is it full circle now being able to create your own comic book line? Oh, I mean, full circle. It's it was, it was inconceivable that I would be doing all the stuff that I'm doing right now. But also, when I look back at the whole picture, it's not too far-fetched. And what I mean by that is we are all people of every generation. We are all products of pop culture. You know, as I sit here before you, of course I'm hip-hop, but I'm also 70s rock radio. Like when I grew up rock radio in the 70s, I would hear the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, and I would hear, um, you know, the Rolling Stones, and I would hear... Black Sabbath and the groups like that. At the same time, hearing Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, Al Green and Aretha Franklin. So that was part of me. But as I sit here before you, I'm also all the TV shows that I watch. The Monsters and the Addams Family and the Brady Bunch, the Jetsons, the Flintstones, Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny. So I was all of those things. But my main interest was comic books because Comic books at the time for me was the only place that I saw um, smart, educated, geeky, nerdy, awkward people who were super bad. Tony Starks. I related to Peter Parker. You know what I'm saying? Who actually lived in Queens. That's right. So it was mind blowing to me. So to, to go through everything that I went through at the same time, um, when, when the break dancers and the graffiti writers and the DJs and the MCs was doing all that early hip hop before we actually started making hip hop records, you know, the break dancers was like our superheroes in the track suits. And, you know, the early hip hoppers before they started putting on showbiz attire, it was all about the sheepskins and Adidas and Pumas and Kangles and El Paco. So our style, our existence, actually became our style. So five years ago, a friend of mine, um, Riggs Morales, who also worked with Eminem over at Shady Records for the Rise of That Great Empire, he used these words. He was like, yo, DMC, man, you was like my superhero. The way you looked and the way you sounded, the way you're dressed and stuff like that. And when we started talking, we thought it was just hip hop culture that we had in common. But we found out that we were we were both little kids. You know, he's a Puerto Rican kid from the city. I'm a black kid from Queens. We found out that before hip hop, we had comic books in common. So he was like, yo, D, you need to do a comic book because with that, you can do the same thing you've always done with your music, inspire, motivate, educate, and entertain. So everything that I am, everything that I experience, and this, you know, goes across the board for all the creators, in our hip-hop culture, you know, I'm looking at your style and flavor. It, will, it, it, it It's the thing that makes you who you are as being a journalist, you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. as a host. So we are products of everything. You know, I'm Godzilla. I'm Frankist. I'm the werewolf. I'm all of these things. And, and some of those attitudes and characteristics is what I think about before I go out there and, and do my craft. That's amazing. And, and it's just so inspiring that 
you're so relatable and down to earth. And that's why most of the time people say that you're the most relatable hip hop artist from run DMC is because you <laughs> are yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it took some time to grow that confidence because I mean, I'm really good at communicating and talking now, not because I want to, it's because after having 37 years up on stage, it was good practice. Because if you look back at the Run DMC career, Run was always the voice, the front man of the group. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And Jay was the flavor. Jay was the style. And I was always the quiet one. I didn't open my mouth till it was time to speak on the stage or on the records. You know what I'm saying? But all of the stuff that I experienced up till now, it eventually got to the point where I would have these one-on-one -on -one interactions with people. And people would have this perception that I'm this egotistical, mighty king of rock dude. You know what I'm saying? That that attitude is only um, something that I I only turn into the hope when it's time to make the record or get on stage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but in the meantime, outside of that, I try to be presentable because one of the things that I learned is our cultures in our communities, especially I don't care if it's the Asian community, I don't care if it's the European community, Italian community, Black community, Puerto Rican community, whatever, whatever. Our our communities and our cultures, we need individuals that represent us to be approachable. You know, even at the height of my career, when the Adidas deal was first signed and Walk This Way was killing, I've that was the time where I really felt like Michael Jackson or Mick Jagger. That's when I, prior to that, it was just, yo, we doing this rap thing, selling records and having fun. But in that Walk This Way Adidas year, I realized I can't go nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Because now I'm so-called famous, but then I realized that I can still go into the supermarket. And, and Jay was really good at this. Like, we would go to malls, right? Mm -hmm. And the whole mall would say, oh, and and, that, and back then we was wearing, it wasn't a costume. We was rocking our track suits and our gold chains and stuff like that. So that was just the wardrobe that we was wearing. So we walking into the middle of a mall dressed like the superstars that the people been seeing in their videos and on the album cover. And I remember it'd be like, you know, hundreds of people ready to run up, you know, and go crazy. And Jay be like, yo, and everybody would stop. Yo, we don't, we don't need none of that. You can just walk with us and we'll sign the autographs and we'll take the pictures, whatever. But we ain't going to have none of that rah while going out and complain. And it'd be literally, we walk into the malls of Queens and Brooklyn with a hundred people following us, but in a calm manner. I've always wanted to be approachable. I never wanted people to see celebrity in me. I wanted people to see something that would represent themselves. And also hip hop taught me to keep it real. So I'm going to give you the time of day because without you, my record's nothing. Without you, I don't have ticket sales. Without you, I don't have no viewership. So, you know, a lot of so-called celebrities, I don't like when they say, I'm not working today or I'm not about that. No, the reason why you have your talent, but if it wasn't the people there to allow you to walk in those footsteps, you would be nothing. So I only draw the line where, I'm in the bathroom stall at the airport. Don't be coming over the top asking for my autograph or if I'm out eating or whatever. Yo, as soon as I finish eating, I'll sign and take every picture for as long as necessary. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up the tracksuits and the dookie rope chains. You changed the hip hop culture. You didn't want to wear the dookie rope chains because you thought at one point that you could get stuck up for it. 
Oh, for sure. Like, I don't want to be walking around flashing on fancy jewelry. You're like, we, we had no idea. It wasn't style. And plus, you got to stand, you had to have, you had to be in the right state of mind and you had to be in the right company to walk around like that. Because like you said, the stick-up kids was out there, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, um, like Slick Rick rhymed on his record, uh, it was the moment I feared. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you couldn't be walking around unless you had your, um, you know, your, your, your boys, your crew, or, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't even bodyguard. You, you ain't walking around with that unless you're rolling with your crew. You know what I'm saying? Because it wasn't about a thing that you you trying to show off, show that you better. I think what helped with us was after it got so commonplace, you know, outside of the drug dealers having all the jewelry, you know, we looked like our environment. You know what I'm saying? So outside of all the drug dealers having the jewelry, but for us, I didn't want Jay and, and, and DJ Hurricane from um, the Beastie Boys, DJ Hurricane and Jay, that's the way Run DMC dressed was how Jay and Hurricane dressed in high school. They was going to school, you know, ninth, tenth, and eleventh grade with the Godfather hats on, the Adidas and the sheepskins and the quarterfield. And you know, before the Dookie rope came out, you just had the fat gold rope chains. You remember? Yeah. But then hip hop <laughs> always make things go bigger. But in the beginning, me and Run wasn't. We wasn't confident and secure enough in that street environment to be walking around ourselves with those big old chains on it. But then it eventually got to a point where all the drug dealers were where to go and all the rappers were where to go, that the, the gold chain really didn't mean that much to anybody anymore because everybody had them, you know what I'm saying? But in the beginning, we was the only ones at the time with them, you know what I'm saying? And it wasn't until uh, we started having our neighborhood travel with us, mm-hmm. Because now we would rent buses. Jay would rent the bus and bring the whole Hollis crew with us so that when we went to the city, Mount Vernon, when we went to Connecticut, when we went to Boston, or when we went to somewhere in Jersey, we got the Hollis crew. So me and Merch, my, yo, we got free security. So now I could go stand up in front, you know, and, and post up by the fence and stuff like that. Because the Hollis crew ain't going to let nobody rob me and stick me up. But eventually the gold, the hats, the gazelles, the track suits, the style that was incorporated into a fashion statement as 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 well as um um a show of wealth. A hundred percent, you've had an impact on the culture, especially for hip hop. In that way, when you mess around in New York town, you're down with the Disco Chiba clown. That's the first time I heard hip hop. I was the first in, time. I'll never forget. I was in seventh grade. And Billy Morris was in eighth grade. He was in a grade above us. And we was, I went to Catholic school too. And this is in Queens. And I remember Billy Morris came into the schoolyard and he's like, yo, come in. And we looking like, yo, what's this, you know, cause you know, we kids, we playing basketball. And we knew Billy, Billy's father was the, 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 the head custodian at all the schools in the area. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I'm saying? Billy was a kid, he always had money, he always had a job, his father had a job. Billy was the fly kid. He wasn't, he wasn't like a, a thug, but he knew all the thugs and the gangsters in the area because his father worked at all the schools. So he knew the who's who, whatever, whatever. And Billy comes into the schoolyard and he got this is way before boom boxes. You had the flat Panasonic tape recorders. The, 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 the flat tape recorders that you used to get in grade school for learning, you know, the learning center with the plastic headphones. So 
he got one of those in like the um the drawstring duffel bag. And he's like, yo, come in. So we go over to Billy and he says, check this out. And he pushes play. And then we hear a beat, right? We hear a beat on Mad Max. We hear a beat and it goes, doom, that, boom, doom, that, boom, boom. We hear a drum beat. And then we just hear this voice go, when you mess around in New York town, you go down with the disco chiva clown. You go down, go down, go down. And then it said, you keep the pep in your step. You don't stop till you get on the mountain top. And when you reach the top, you reach your peak. That's when you hear Eddie Chiba speak and it stopped. And it was like a minute and a half. It was all static. He was like, yo, do that again. So we stood there in that schoolyard. We just listened to that thing for like three hours because whatever, I didn't know what it was but it felt like me, it sounded like me, it resonated with my DNA and my molecular, my molecular structure and everything. It was just like, whatever this is, it feel and sounds so good. And I remember I, had, I asked Billy, yo, can I hold it? It was a Friday after school. So the weekend was coming. I was like, yo, can I hold your tape over the weekend? He was like, hell no, I ain't giving you my tape or whatever. And I was like, please, please, please. I swear to God, I was like, you can have my mother. I'll give you the keys to my father's electric 225. What? And he was like, oh, man, what are you, like, you know, he saw my desire to have it. So he said, okay, you can hold my tape this weekend, but you make sure you bring my tape back Monday morning. So from Friday night all the way to Sunday night till about 9.30 at night, because eventually I fell asleep, I just listened to whatever that was, not knowing it was this hip hop thing. You know what I'm saying? It just, it wasn't singing but it had a melody, it had a resonance to it. And it was very inspirational. You, know, um, you, um, you don't stop till you get on the mountaintop. Like it was saying, get out there and persevere. And it just had all of the elements that soon would later become, you know, the inspiration behind hip hop. But that was my eye opener. When I heard that, I gave Dick Billy back his tape that Monday. And it was like the eye opener that let me start noticing block parties. And, and house parties. And then because of that tape, I started hearing the other so the other music like that coming out of the boom boxes. And it was just like overnight, I heard the cassette tape, those little tape recorders turned into boom boxes and just get bigger and bigger around me. And then it opened me up to seeing the DJs and the MCs DJing in the park. And then I found out this is the thing that they're doing up in the Bronx. And then I heard about guys like Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash and the Grand Wizard Theodore and the Grand Mixer DST. Then I started hearing about um, the Funky 4 Plus 1, the Furious 5 MCs, the Cold Crush 4 MCs, the Treacherous 3 MCs, Africa Bambada, the Zulu Nation. It was like, what the hell is all of this? Not knowing I was going to be a part of it. But it wasn't until I heard, um, I heard Rapper's Delight and I learned it start to finish. And the only thing that I liked about Rapper's Delight was the superhero rhyme about Superman, which was Grandmaster Cash rhyme from the, the Big Bang's Big Casanova Bank's Fly. Was Casanova Fly. That was his rhyme. And the only thing that attracted me to that, because if you remember Mad Max in the beginning, a lot of the early hip hop, before I heard the young versions of it, it was more of the it was more of the rapper's delight style. Hip hop, I'm the DJ rapping man, I'm the disco man, and it was those guys. But Grandmaster Cass, Big Bank Hanks Rob was more of comic book, it was more youthful. Mm-hmm. If you listen to Rapper's Delight, there was something about Cass's pizzazz 
and presence that was more relevant to the ordinary dude who wasn't into disco DJing. And I'm a man with the voice. Cass was just raw, right? So I learned rappers to like because I loved cash rhymes from start to finish. But it wasn't until I heard Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five super rapping on Enjoy Records that I, I, I wanted to do it, not on a professional level. It made me realize I could just write rhymes about me. But when I heard super rapping and that song opened up, um, it was a party night. Everybody was breaking. The highs were screaming and the bass was shaking. And it won't be long till everybody knowing that Flash is on the B-Box going. And, and now when I heard that, it was way different from hip hop, the hibbit, the hibbit. I was like, what is this? And then it opened up. And this is so definitive about the origin of hip hop. When Melly Mel said Italian, Caucasian, Japanese, Spanish, Indian, Negro, Vietnamese, MC, just jockeys, y'all, fly kids for the young ladies, introducing the crew, you gotta see to believe where one, two, three, four, five MCs, and it was five different voices. And when I heard that, I was like, get me a pen. And, and when I heard super rapping, I became Easy D at first. Because my name was Daryl, it started with a dean. It was easy for me to write rhymes because I had this crazy imagination. And then Grandmaster Flash, I realized the DJ plays the records for the MCs to rap over. So simultaneously for me, Mad Max, I was MC Easy D and I was DJ Grandmaster Get High because you didn't need weed or old English to be intoxicated because my music would do the work. And that's what it was me for in the beginning until... I heard the Cold Crush 4 battle tape against the Fantastic Five at Harlem World. And when I heard the Cold Crush 4, Grandmaster Cash, Jerry D. Lewis, Easy AD, and the Almighty KG, using the initials of their names to describe themselves, when you know GMC, you had JDL, you had EAD, and you had AKG, I became DMC, D from Darrow, MC from McDaniels. And I started writing rounds about DM, DMC, and that was just for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, in eighth grade, Run comes over my house to play basketball. Because Run was a huge New York Knicks fan. Dr. J was all it, everything for him. And Run and Jay were the basketball players. Mm-hmm. They were the athletes, right, of the street. I was a comic book, geeky, nerdy, straight-A honor roll student. So Run comes over my house, and plain and simple, he finds my rhyme book. And he says, yo, D, you writing these rhymes? And this was what, um, this was 1979, I think it was, 1979. Yeah, 78, 79. And he's like, yo, Daryl, you wrote these rhymes? And I was like, yeah, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's what I do, it's my hobby. And he said, yo, these are really good. And he just said this, whenever my brother Russell lets me make a record, I'm putting you in my group. And when he said that, I was like, yeah, right, whatever, whatever. So four years went by because when we graduated from elementary school, uh, Jam Master J and Run, they went to the same high school. I went to a different high school. That's right. I, went to, I went to Rice High School in Harlem, which was known for basketball on 124th Street in Lenox. But it was when I got to Rice High School in ninth grade, um, I started hearing all the hip hop before Rapper's Delight. Like I got to hear Grandmaster Flash before their first record. I got to hear Curtis Blow before his first record. I got to hear the Funky Four, Kumo Ditra. I got to hear all of the everybody that was making those early records 
before they even made records. And they were talking about more stuff like what they ate, what they wore. It was more of a young generation rap as opposed to me. I'm the man in the disco. It was about young kids talking about the things that they did, the struggles they went through. So when I got to Rice High School, I completely changed my whole persona to be like Spider-Man and the Marvel superheroes that I loved on the microphone. So then my pen game just went above and beyond whatever, whatever, with no intention of being in a business. And then ninth grade by 12th grade, my rhyme books were stacked up about 10 feet high in every direction. I get a phone call and it's Joe, it's Ryan. And he's like, yo, D, remember four years ago when I said, if, if Russell gives me an opportunity to make my own record? And I was like, oh yeah. He was like, grab your rhyme book. We go into the studio. So Matt Max, we went to the studio. We made our first single in 1983 called It's Like That in the B-side with Sucker and Seeds. That's right. And that's how it all came about. I'm DMC yep. and the place to be. I go to St. John's St. University. Because I, I, I graduated 12th grade. I sent out my resume and I got accepted to St. John's University. And the reason why St. John's was so significant um. I picked St. John's because my best friend growing up was a young man named Douglas Hayes. And Douglas Hayes, he played in the same CYO, CYO Catholic, Youth, Catholic Youth Organization Basketball League that Mark Jackson played in. I grew up That's with right. Mark Jackson, the legendary Mark Jackson, who went to St. John's and who played for the Knicks. So when we was little, I used to um, keep the score at the score table for him. I wasn't the athletic guy. But I always hung with Butter. So Mark Jackson was on a JV and Butter was on a varsity team. So people would come to the games to see Mark Jackson score 45, 50 points. And then people would stay for the, for the, for the varsity game because Butter, he was a fat, heavy set kid, but he had a nice handle and he had this crazy jump shot. So Butter would score 55 to 60 points. So that's how, that was my induction to meeting. I didn't hang with Jaden, but I knew Jason Monzel and I knew the teacher Hurricane. But long story short, it was my friend Douglas Hayes, who we call Butter. He told me, pick St. John's University so we don't have to leave um, New York City to go to college. Because St. John's was about a 10 minute bus ride from where Hollis was. So we wanted to treat St. John's like it was high school. Or we wanted to treat St. John's like it was a neighborhood. I could have walked to St. John's from my house if I needed to. <laughs> so I picked St. John's because I wanted to stay local. I didn't want to go to Syracuse. I didn't want to go to USC or anything like that. So it was during the summer of 82 when I graduated that me and Run went to make the demo for It's Like That Suck Him Seas. And the reason why I put the Suck Him, the reason why I put the St. John's rhyme on there is me and Run, we wrote It's Like That together. So Sucker MCs was supposed to be run song all by himself. That's why if you listen to it, he got three lyrics on it. And I don't come in till the end with that one short rhyme. He was like, yo, D, you got to go in there. Because Russell didn't believe I could rap. Russell was like, D is smart. He can rhyme. I'm going to let him do it. It's like that with you. Russell's thing was, D is not a performer. So Ron was like, yo, D, you know, you always need somebody that's going to encourage you and push you. So it's like, D. Just, I'm going to say my three rhymes at the end of the record. I'm going to pass you the mic. And I was like, Joe, I don't know what to say. And Run was just like, just say your newest rhyme. So my newest rhyme, Mad Max, was me writing a rhyme about me making it to St. John's University. So we put that rhyme on the end of Suck of Seas. And that was kind of my introduction 
into the hip hop universe is somebody to be watched out for. That's right. And right? business management was what you were going for for St. John's. You take a leave of absence. And Wyclef actually said years later that DMC is the only rapper that can rhyme about St. John's University, collard greens, sneakers, Christmas, and make it sound gangster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I took a leave of absence because I knew I was going back. And, you know, I, and my only option was, okay, I'm going to go back to St. John's. I hate business management because I didn't like um, accounting and bookkeeping and all of that stuff. That's horrible. So I, I had to look at myself and say, what could I do? My other option, because I can draw, because I I've been drawing comic books since second grade. I've been reading comic books, even though I couldn't read since kindergarten. So I've been looking at the pictures. You know how when you was little, you look at the pictures, you don't know. But um, one, of, one, of, one of my skills that I did have, not knowing I, I could do this hip hop thing, was I could draw. So I was going to come back after um, after doing shows for the summer of 84 for the one record that I had out. The only reason my mother let me go is because I said, Ma, um, Joe's going to be mad at me if I don't go support him when we do any shows. I told my mother and father, whatever money I make this summer, I'll use to pay my own tuition. Because we was getting like $1,500 to $2,000 a show which was a lot of money straight yeah. out of high school back then. And I knew my mom's and pops was working hard trying to pay my tuition for me. So I was like, Ma, please let me go this one summer. I'll take a leave of absence. And when I go back next year, um, um, I'll pay my own tuition. Not knowing I was going to take a leave of absence and be absent ever since. But my other option when I came back was going to drop out of business management. I was going to either take architecture or graphic design because that was something that I can draw and this was before computers. This was all hands and rulers and stuff like that. So I said, yo, I could do that. You know, anything that could go with me drawing, I could be successful. And I had no idea that my first record was going to be a hit. The second record was going to be a hit. And then we made the big decision to try to make a whole hip hop album, which was unheard of at that time. <laughs> I want to get into Walk This Way because Rockbox is the first hip-hop rock and roll record by you guys. But Walk This Way, when did the conversation start to come about between you and Aerosmith to create this groundbreaking hit, which saved Aerosmith's career? <laughs> yeah, they say it too. They say we had, we had no idea who Aerosmith exactly was. The reason why we chose to do that record in the first place, for anybody, uh, for the DJs and the MCs at the time, it was all about having breakbeats. You know, you got to have a James Brown breakbeat. You got to have a disco breakbeat. You got to have a jazz breakbeat. You got to have a funk breakbeat. So for me and Run, we just knew the album was called Toys in the Attic. So it was the album with the toys on it. And get that out and play beat number four. Because we didn't know the title because Jay would scratch out the title of the songs. So the rival DJs wouldn't see what record that is playing. So for me and Run, we was going to do a remake of the album with the toys on it, number four. That's all we knew. So we was in the studio making a loop of the, just the, the, the beginning drum beat and the guitar. At this particular time, Rick Rubin, uh, one of the greatest producers ever in the history of the game, produced Run DMC, Beastie Boys, Metallica, Johnny Cash, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, and the list goes on and on, ACDC, everybody. Rick Rubin was our producer at the time. He was like, yo, You'll need to do the record over. So when we when Rick said that, we said, Yo, Rick, what the hell you think we're gonna do? We're gonna sample this, rearrange it, and me and Run gonna talk about how good we are. 
Rick said, no, what I mean by do the record over is do the record over the way the band originally did it. And that was, me and Run was totally against it. You know what I'm saying? Yo, we got rhymes, man. We need to be, we was like, you heard Rock Pops? You heard King of Rock and Run's whole thing was Rick. D got rhymes. D need to say his rhymes. But Rick, uh, with a little reluctance, he, he, he um, persuaded us to learn the song we had never heard. I had never heard to send me and run, had never heard the whole song in our lives. Because we didn't need to let the DJ, didn't need to let the record play that long. So we had to go there, learn the lyrics to a song we was using but never heard before. And then we had to come back to the studio to recreate the song um, the way the band did it. So that was cool. Me and Run hated it. And the message out to the young people or anybody in life, at whatever stage you are, always be open to try new things because you never know. It could change your life and change the world. But um, Mad Max, I think the thing that really made this significant was the fact that Rick went and got the group to do it with us. Like, if we would have did the record over the way the band did it, we would be talking about it, but I don't think it would have changed the end. Like, it changed everything. That, that one song opened up, changed music. And the fact that Rick said, okay, while me and Run trying to learn the song the way the band did it, Rick was brilliant to say, you know what? I'm going to have Run and D do it with the original guys that made it. And it's a big difference because now... My generation of hip hop and my generation is seeing us with them. Their generation of rock and roll and all the people they impacted is seeing them with us. So now we just combining that. And um, I've been everywhere on the globe. I've been to um, South Sudan. I've been to Russia. I've been to um, Brazil. I've been to South America, all over the world. And people say when Steven Tyler took the mic stand, and knock down the wall in the Walk This Way video, they say, yo, that didn't just happen in, the, in a video. It happened in the world. So literally, what we did in the video and with the song happened in the world, and uh, it gave birth to, you know, everybody from Limp Biscuit to Corn to Rage Against the Machine. 100%. It was monumental for hip-hop, and we're still talking about it to this day, and I think it's actually right. featured in the movie The Lost Boys on the beach scene. Yes, it's in the Lost Boys, uh, one of the most phenomenal scenes. Uh, I was just talking about this um, last week as we as I was doing interviews about the, the children's book, um, the scene in Ray Donovan. At the end of the Ray Donovan episode, um, I think it was the third season, second or third season, he has this big fallout with his son, stuff like that. And then he walks into the room and his son throws on Walk This Way and Ray's standing there drinking and he hears Walk This Way on. And then the whole episode ends with just Ray rocking out to Ray Donovan. I got so many calls like, yo, D, this is crazy. So it's a good thing that a record that was for one generation was recreated by us in another generation and was able to touch all generations. And I think that's one of the things that art and communication, you know, is supposed to do. I remember 1988, Chuck D told me, um, what Chuck D told us, we was on tour, it was Run DMC, Public Enemy, EPMD, Eric B and Rakim, and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And we was all on tour and at the time Rakim was on stage and we all standing there looking at Rakim, like blown away, like, wow, man, none of us can do that. And it was a very inspirational moment. But I remember Chuck D saying, we are in a good position right now, especially for our young generation. And we was like, what you talking about, Chuck? 
Chuck said, oh, what's the greatest thing about this hip hop thing? And, you know, we was like, yo, we selling out arenas. We're making movies. We getting sneaky deals. And Chuck said, yo, yo, all of that is cool. But the most powerful thing about this hip hop thing is our opportunity for communication and dialogue. He said, there's always a mic in front of us. We're on the radio now. We're doing videos now. We're making movies now. We're getting to do it. There's always a camera or mic around, which allows us to say something or represent something that's going to elevate anybody that's out there in the audience. And I never forgot about that. And it was just unique that Run DMC was able to take two generations, you know, 70s and 80s, two genres, hip hop and rock and roll, and two nationalities, white people and black people, and do it in a cool way that shows that the more we work together, the better it gets for all of us. That's right. Monumental and iconic. Thank you for creating that record. It's going to live on forever. I want to take it to 1989 after the whole MC Hammer disc came about because <laughs> you, you liked MC Hammer, Run hated yes. him, Jam Master J hated him. But more importantly, when I interviewed MC Search, we talked about MC Hammer and Third Base, the Gas Face record. Oh, remember this- that. <laughs> I have the picture here, actually, from when you were in the music video for the Gas Face. Yes, I was. Yeah. How was that day? Yes, and when did you find out about this record? Because this was a record sticking up for you guys, going at MC Hammer. I know, I know. I mean, uh, Jay was very proud of the record, you know what I'm saying? I forgot, Run probably couldn't come because he was a family man at that time, so he couldn't come. because I think at that time he did have his, his three kids or whatever. So Jay, you know, Jay was the guy that was in the mix of everything, in with the style, in with the fashion, in with the streets, in with the basketball and everything like that so when jay calls me and says yo d you gotta come represent you know what i'm saying i know you don't i know you don't like to get involved in people's beefs and stuff like that but he made me look at it as an overall a representative representative representation for the whole culture and he said d he was like yo you gotta give these guys some props man for having the balls to do something as you know direct as that and and so i went to support third base they were part of my family I went to support the notion of hip hop. I know it's very competitive, but it wasn't like I was, it wasn't as deep and personal for me as it was for searching them. But um, the the reason why I can understand MC Hammer is um, when I was a kid, I didn't see black and white music. When I was a kid, I just saw music for what it did for the individual's specific of specific scenarios. You know what I'm saying? But um. With, with, with the third base issue, I didn't see MC Hammer as disrespecting the hip hop culture. I saw him as something that would elevate it. And, um, and what I mean by that is Hammer wasn't Modi or LL or, or, or Tretch to me. Hammer was my generation, James Brown. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't a threat, even though he called us out. And then later on, I found out the reason why Hammer called us out is we was in Oakland playing the Oakland Coliseum in his hometown, and he was backstage, and he was known in his city, so he would get in all the basketball games, all the hockey games, all the football games, run DMC, and we bring our tour to town, the Raising Hell tour to town, if I'm not mistaken, and he sees Russell going in, and he goes up to Russell like he would do with anybody, yo, I'm MC Hammer. I'm here representing Oaktown, this and that. Yo, can I come in backstage? And Russell looks at him and says, I don't know who you are. Get out of here. Who are you? You nobody. So that hurt him. So, I mean, he was hurt. So the only way that he could get back, and, you know, Russell being run DMCs, he had to attack what was 
was open to him. But I never saw him as disrespectful or a threat to hip hop. Matter of fact, I thought it good because think about it. He was one of the first guys to get all the endorsements. That's right. And every he had his he had his action figure, he had his cartoon TV show, he had an endorsement at Taco Bell, and everybody hated him. <laughs> oh, he's a sellout, this and that. To the point now, this is the first thing most artists in hip hop want to get right now and don't even put out great music. But I thought I saw Hammer as my generation, James Brown. You know, Run DMC was Run DMC. Public Enemy was Public Enemy. NWA was NWA. Um, 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 Two Live Crew was the sex, you know, part of it. And Hammer was out James Brown. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I didn't see him as a threat. But when Third Base did that, it was based in the competitive seriousness of not letting some entity or some concept defile the whole essence and purity and foundation of hip-hop so you know i went and supported third base for that because number one they were part of the family that's right but it, it was a smart thing to do run dmc anybody that ever said something about us we never had to go about anybody directly what we would do like even right now you see how these guys go back and forth on social media and then it all escalates. Run DMC ended every beef to where nobody never beefed with us because we didn't give them the chance to. You know, Karis One took some shots at us. You know, kings lose crown. I am the teacher. Rulers lose kingdoms. You know, everybody put their little one-two punch at Run DMC. But instead of starting a, a battle of going back and forth like some um, immature individuals, if you come at me, you come at me, you know, whether you feel it's justified or not, but it's not true. If you come at me for what I did on Sucker and Seas, I'm going to make Rockbox. That ends the battle right there. You come <laughs> at me because of Rockbox, I'm going to make the king of rock. Like, you can make a whole song about me or you can come at me with 16 bars. I'm going to let you go, and you, you better have the best 16 bars ever, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let people go, ooh, ooh. All I got to do is say four lines. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Done. You know what I'm saying? So people that would, um, um, in our career, 1988, when hip-hop started getting very lyrical, uh, hip-hop started getting to another level to where we were, we became the OGs of it. So people was like, run DMC's over. They're too commercial. Uh, we don't want to hear the tricky stuff no more. So what did me and Run do? We made a song called Together Forever. Remember? One, two, one, two. Party people, your dreams have now been fulfilled. Get out your seat and let's get ill. That's right, y'all. We're not just rough. We're more than tough. And when it comes to rhymes, we got enough. And we dropped the 808 and we went hardcore with an echo chamber that shut everybody up. And then it happened once again in the 90s. You know, hip-hop had changed. We were the OG, we were the old guys, or run DMCs played out and over. But then we hooked up with Pete Rock, and Pete Rock produced Down with the Down King, for the King. For us, and look what happened. So at every point where people was trying to say, we don't have what it takes, we would create a song or a, um, a representation. Because my thing is this, I don't have time to waste energy going back and forth for you because it could go back and forth forever. I'm ending the battle. I'm not, I, I want you to prosper. So I don't want to kill your career. But I want you, when, when you come at me, after you hear what I got to say, you're going to be looking in another direction. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so 
the beauty of the third base thing was, oh, you know, whether it was the Bridges Over with MC Shan and um and KRS One, whether it was um LL Cool J and um Cannabis, or uh, whether it was LL Cool J and Kumo D, you know what I'm saying? The death so, blow. You know what I'm saying? Whether you don't want it to get to a level where with with Tupac and Biggie. You know what I'm saying? If, if, if both entities on both sides is right, Suge Knight and Puffy, not the media, not the entertainment business, Suge Knight, and, and if Suge was hating on Puff more than Puff was hating on like Puff wasn't thinking about Suge. Puff was no. building Bad Boy and getting his money. But what should have happened was outside of the labels and outside of the hood is Puff and Suge should have sat down and said, we're going to end this tonight. We're going to let Pac and Big go for record for record. And we're going to divide the sales up of both products together. See, nobody thinks like that. You know no. what I'm saying? Because everybody is so much into drama. But the drama can lead to situations and conditions that you can't reverse. Don't take it personal. Let's go round for round, record for record, song for song. But you come at me, I don't want to be spending the next year's in the media talking about, ooh, such and such made a record about me. You come at me, I'm going to make a record. And then when you say, did you hear that song that such and such made about you? I'm going to go, who? Did you hear my record? <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that you bring up Suge Knight. He wanted to sign you guys to Death Row Records. Yes. And you brought up Biggie. I have an interesting picture here for you because my downfall was a record off life after death in which he featured you on it and used your rhymes too. Yep. And I have a picture here. If you can remember where this was when you guys were hanging out with Biggie Smalls. Yes. That was at the shooting of, um, Oh, what was the song? That, that was, that was that documentary film that Jeff Cham had did. Um, not the source, the roots, the event. That was a documentary film that featured Biggie, Snoop Dogg, Run DMC, Wu Tang Clan. Oh, Dad, what was the name of that? The Show. It was okay. called The Show. That was two thousand and let me see that one. That was like two thousand five, two thousand six. So what had happened was um, Biggie actually wanted to meet us. And it was like, it was so humble. Like he was the hot thing then, you know what I'm saying? And it was like, we get a knock on the dressing room. Yo, P.I.G. want to meet y'all. And so we was like, yo, yo, can I take a picture? Like it was the, it was the coolest, most humble experience ever. Cause he was the it man. He was, Wu-Tang was killing and Biggie was coming up. You know, he was the rising superstar about to become the face of hip hop. But him, even when we met Pac, it, it was very humble. But you know, to answer your question, do you know how souped I was that Biggie wanted to use me? And you know what's funny? That was a perfect segue. He wanted to sample, he wanted to sample off of um, um, Together Forever. When I say, um, I said, um, um, that's not all. MCs have the goal to pray and plan for my downfall, but I'm not running. I'm just stunning, smart, not stupid, because I'm so cunning. MC's regretting, I'm upsetting. My recitals take titles and dollars. So on, on, on Together Forever, the song that we made to let people know, don't think we hip, don't think we not hip hop, don't think we not gangster, don't think we not sweet. Biggie, for my downfall, he wanted to take my verse and make it the chorus. And then he said, wow. we don't want to sample it. I mean, it was also for money reasons, too. But we want you to come in and say it for us. So um, that's why I went in and I changed it. That's not all MCs have the gall to pray. 
because you got to understand something. When I did that record in 88, I was in the same position Biggie was. Everybody was coming at Run DMC. Oh, they over, they ain't nothing. So this was Biggie. He, he was feeling the pressure. So he wanted to make a statement. Let me get the guy who, who prophesized about what's going to happen when you get great to come in and give this message so I can let my generation know it's my time and who I am. So it was a big honor. I was humbled. But of course I was souped. Because now, even I'm the OG, what did that do for me, Mad Max? That made me current. That's right. Out of of all the rappers, he could have possibly picked who he picked. You know what I'm saying? So it made made me hot. It established me. And then he went further than that. He had Run DMC come open up for him on a bunch of his shows. That's amazing. You know what I'm saying? So that's what people don't really hear about these guys. No. Rest in peace to Biggie Smalls and rest in peace yep. to Jam Master Jay. I know that you guys still perform. You do certain performances today, and it's not the same without him. And right, right. You know, definitely one of the main innovators out here, one of the greatest DJs in hip hop ever, and will always I be mean, remembered. Oh, for sure. I mean, he inspired every he inspired every DJ. Every DJ that there is, he inspired. He inspired um all the radio um um Funk Master Flex. I mean, we used to do shows, and Flex would be up front at the show. Telling me and run, move to out move. the way, run. I want to see Jay. Like, that's crazy. Cause Jay, you know, he was back there. He was actually our our band. All the music was coming from Jay first. You know, Jay was using the vinyl. He never pushed buttons. No. You know what I'm saying? Not that the tech uh, technology is supposed to be a, a, an assistant to us. That's right. So Jay's whole thing, I mean, Jay inspired um, like Chuck D said on Bring the Noise. Run DMC proved the DJ could be the band. <laughs> <laughs> like we was doing coliseums and stadiums with Jay. We played Live Aid. Like it blows kids' minds when I tell them Run DMC did the same thing Freddie Mercury and Freddie Mercury and Queen did in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. What do you mean? What do you mean? And then I got to go to YouTube and show them Run DMC on stage in 1985 with Jam Master Jay on the turntables in front of the crowd at RKF Stadium. It's oh, crazy. It you is crazy. Saying? And just hearing all the stories about when you're performing MSG, my Adidas, when you extended that, that oh. was amazing. And most importantly, that, I that, do... that, that show got us the Adidas deal. That's right. That was the deal seal because it was a sold out Madison Square Garden. They had representatives from Adidas there. And then that union changed the whole business model. That unit, um, it existed, but the people say Run DMC and Adidas started the sneaker culture for Nam. You know, the, the whole, the culture was, from, that was the day it was allowed to exist and do what it is to doing today. So it, it definitely was a blessing. But Madison Square Garden, you know, we had no idea. You know, Run said, hold your sneaker up, D. I held my new sneaker up. I didn't realize everybody in the garden who knew they was coming to the show went to the store and brought some fresh Adidas. So Adidas, you know, that that, that was uh, uh, that was corporations, that was commercialization, that was business, and that was the fashion world having to acknowledge the potential and the value of this younger generation's creativity. Changed hip hop. I want to get into for the last segment of the interview here is the importance of you opening up about your depression phase when you were metaphysical, spiritual, suicidal wreck, and you yep. being inspired by Sarah McLaughlin's record, Angel, collaborating with her on a record and finding out that she was adopted because 
what you did in coming out saved lives, not only yourself, but it saved other people's lives. And did right. anyone ever come out as a notable figure or a notable person in either music anywhere in the world saying that your records saved people's lives? Oh my goodness. When I, when I came out, I, I didn't know the impact that I was having until the Sarah McLaughlin record happened to me. But prior to that, yes, my whole career um, from the 80s all the way up to that time in the 90s when I started going through my struggles, people would always come up to me, yo, D, man, your first album got me through some of the hardest times in my life. Yo, D, in 1985, when you put King of Rock out, my life was sucky, sucky. It was the worst. And I would just sit in my room and listen to your records. Um, I had people recently come to me and say, yo, man, I had the worst parents and worst childhood ever. And the thing that saved me and delivered me, I would sit in my room and I would just listen to the whole Raising Hell cassette tape from start to end. Yo, DMC, when you put Down With The King out in the 90s, man, I was struggling and this and that, and that record gave me inspiration. So I had heard it, but I never went through it myself. And then, like I said, in 1993, when um, Pete Rock produced Down With The King for us, like prior to that, we was well-respected. We were the OGs, the pioneers. Everybody showed us love, but we wasn't participating. We wasn't on the radio anymore. We wasn't on MTV anymore. We wasn't touring. But all of that changed in 1993. Um, Pete Rock, he did for Run DMC what Run DMC did for Aerosmith. Pete Rock brought us back with the Down With The King record. The song and the video, if you look at the video, Everybody came out. Easy E. Easy E flew itself yeah. to be in a what run DMC's coming back. Yo, I gotta beat it. Easy E flew himself just to make a cameo and show support for us. So that record put us back on a chart, back on TV, back on the road and everything. And right at that time, it just hit me with this crazy depression. I didn't know, you know, what it was. I, I looked at my life, you know, my Adidas walked this way, first to go gold, first to go platinum. It was just something that was missing. And during that time, Sarah McLaughlin Records was the only record that I could listen to that, you know, made me feel good. You know what I'm saying? But then the long story short, in the midst of that, I discovered, you know, I said, if I die tomorrow, people know what Run DMC did. I think there's a behind the music on us, Wikipedia, Google, there's two and three books on us. You can find out what's the big deal with Run DMC. So I was like, if I do die tomorrow, whether it's by suicide or just, you know, the plane could crash. People don't know who Daryl is. So I said, I got to leave something here other than just my music. And I wanted to write a book. So I knew my birthday was May 31st, 1964. I called my mom. So I'm like, your mom, I'm writing a book. I need more details about my birthday. How much did I weigh? What time I was born? What hospital? She told me those three things. I love you, son. I love you too, mom. I hung up the phone. An hour goes by. She calls back with my father. We have something else to tell you. So now I'm thinking they're going to be like, yo, when you was born, it was a power outage in the hospital and we gave birth to you by candlelight or we gave birth to you in the backseat of the Cadillac or whatever, stuff like that. They was like, no, you was a month old when we brought you home and you're adopted. So I was 35 years old and depressed when I found out that I was adopted. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that pushed me further down the, the um the, the catechisms of depression, you know, because now, why? What happened? This, you know, you get all these why. It was confusion, anxiety, mystery, and all of those things that could drive a person crazy. So I wasn't supposed to be drinking because in 1990s, 
I was in, in, in 1990, I got diagnosed with acute pancreatitis because I was drinking a case of Old English a day, not just 140 or 240s. I was drinking 1240s a day. And this is during the daytime. Yeah. Then I would go out at nighttime and drink rum and coke and champagne and all of that. So I had acute pancreatitis. I'm an alcoholic, metaphysical, suicidal, spiritual wreck who just found out that he was adopted. And then Jam Master Jay gets shot and killed. So imagine all that I was dealing with. It wasn't until I went to rehab to stop drinking. And the reason why I went to rehab to stop drinking is because somebody told me I could do a search to find my birth mother. You know what I'm saying? Which was, I, I didn't want to go down that way, but I said, okay, Byford and Banner, who I rhymed about on all my records, son of Byford, brother of Al. Banner's my mother and runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's. Those burgers are Ronald's. Right. I ran down my family tree, my mother, my father, my brother, and me. I was always family. Um, Christmas time, Hollis, Queens, Byford, my brother, Alfred. So I said, if I'm going to go down this route, I got to be of sound body and mind. So the revelation, as traumatic as it was of me being adopted, was actually the cat catalyst that allowed me to go get clean and sober. But it wasn't until I got saved and delivered in rehab, I found therapy. And therapy just allowed me to talk about how I felt. And there was no shame in it. If you remove guilt and shame, you remove the pain. And for anybody out there listening right now, you only, you won't heal unless you talk about how you feel, whether good or bad. Because we celebrate people that say, I feel like a million bucks. I feel like I could take on the world. I feel like a warrior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as you say, I don't feel like myself, I feel depressed. We start saying, get away from me, crazy. Get away from me, riddle. There's nothing wrong with somebody saying they feel like killing themselves because that's how they feel. What's been wrong all of these years since we've been on this planet and been in existence is how we react to somebody um, saying that. And they say, deep, how could you say there's nothing wrong with somebody feel, um, feel that's how they feel. I can't tell you, Mad Max, if you say, if you go outside right now and it's 30 degrees, I can't say don't be cold. No. But I can say come and get some heat or here's a jacket. If you're hungry, if you didn't eat in three days, there's no way I can tell you don't feel hungry because you do. I can't tell you don't feel tired. I can't tell you you've been by yourself for the last week. Don't feel lonely. Feeling like you don't want to kill yourself. You feel like you want to kill yourself because there's a person, something that happened in your life or a situation causing you to feel like that. So when a person says that, sit that person down and say, who or what is it making you feel that way? And if you got to talk to somebody till the day you die, before you look, look up, you'll look back and say, wow, I've been alive, I've been alive 99 years dealing with my feelings. So if you remove guilt and shame, you remove the pain. Don't feel guilty about the child abuse, the sexual abuse. Don't feel guilty about your anxiety. Don't feel guilty about your anorexia. So what helped me to get to that position was hip hop has taught me to keep it real. Tell your truth. So all of these years, I told you about St. John's University, told you about my glasses, told you about chicken and collard greens. Like Wycliffe said, I'm so gangsta. I told you about um, Christmas. So now if you come to me and say, DMC, I ain't seen you in a while. Where you been? I'm not ashamed to say I've been in rehab. I'm, I go to therapy. I'm not ashamed to say I'm OCD. I'm not ashamed to say I'm an alcoholic. 
Remove the guilt and the shame, remove the pain. And if you don't admit how you feel, whether good or bad, you never heal. My music always healed people. You know what I'm saying? I never told people you're wrong for being in a gang or you're wrong for selling drugs. I would just rhyme and make you say, wow, DMC goes to St. John's University and he still got the Benz and the Rolls Royce. You know what I'm saying? So I gave you an example of the options and the possibilities, not of my life. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be who you are, the way you're supposed to be, which is the same message that I got in the kids book. That's right. And just a right. true inspiration and even finding out about what search was going through. So you started to find out yes. about other people in the hip hop community. Well, that, that, see, that's a powerful thing. I started talking about in search. What? DMC, can you come? I'm doing the very same thing. But if we don't talk about what we went been through, we'll never get to. That's right. You I always tell people you got to go through to get to. How do you get outside? You got to go through the door. How do you get inside? You got to go through the door. How do you get from that room to the hallway? You got to go through something to get to whatever you go. Sometimes the getting to isn't all um, sunshine and smiles. No. But don't be ashamed of that because experience is the greatest teacher. Um, I recently heard somebody say prophets are not fortune tellers. No. Prophets learn from experience. They learn from history and prophets are not afraid to walk the walk so that when they get on the other side, they can talk the talk. You know what I'm saying? We, we are no different from Martin Luther King and Jesus and Moses and all of our deliverers. All of those guys went through something to accomplish something greater than themselves. So we are, everybody's story is, is everybody's story is valuable in a lifestyle. That's why when I started speaking out about, you know, my adoption and being a foster kid and, you know, mental health additions, search heard about me. Uh, Dante Culpepper, I, I hooked up with Rosie Perez because she was a foster kid. We started doing things in the schools. Everybody who was already doing something or wanted to do something, when I spoke out, it gave us the opportunity to go do it. You know, everybody think it's, it's such a big deal about, you know, when, when you look at Wu-Tang and Kung Fu movies, there was people that didn't care nothing about hip hop, but when they saw Wu-Tang was in the very same movies that they loved, it was an introduction into the hip hop where they realized they're no, no, we're not different. That's why DMC and Daryl makes comics. You know, if you listen to King of Rock, crash through walls, come through floors, bust through ceilings and knock down doors. Life is always, is, is always a struggle. Superheroes do that. If you look at the superheroes, Batman, Superman, Peter Parker, for instance, they all flawed individuals. But they they, you know, they 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 overcome. It's not the bad guys that they beat, it's the adversity, the self-adversity that allows them to rise up to be able to face all of those um out, out of supernaturality world challenges. So hip-hop and rock and roll showed me that, and it taught me, hip-hop taught me deep, keep it real. I can't speak to you about being a gangbanger because I wasn't a gangbanger. I can't speak to you about selling drugs because I never sold drugs. So when I make my records, I got to say, I'm D with the same attitude, I'm DMC. And you're, I'm like, you think you hard because you got a gun and you got you, you sold drugs? I'm DMC. See in the place to be, I go to St. John's. You know what? Whoa, I just murdered you. You know what I'm saying? So it's all about um, the kid in Compton or the kid in Newark or the kid in Harlem is no different from the kid in Beverly Hills or the kid that lives in Aspen, you know, Colorado. The rich kids and the, and the poor kids are the same people, just in different environments. That's right. 
DMC, you're such an inspiration to everyone, not just in hip hop worldwide and writing your own book and explaining to people 10 ways why they shouldn't commit suicide, 10 reasons why, and, and just continuing to be an inspiration to everyone and what you've done in hip hop and outside of that. Is there anything else you would love to let my audience know about anything that you have coming up, anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm right now currently working. I got two new songs out. You can check them out on all platforms, Spotify and YouTube. One of the songs is called America. It's the title track off a vinyl album that I'm doing that I hope to release in the next four months. The, 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 the vinyl album is called America, and it features uh, rock and roll royalty like Joan Jett, uh, Sammy Hager. I know you know them. Um, I got a song with Mick Mars from Motley Crue, Sebastian Bach from Skid Row, Travis Barker from Blink-182, and Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses. Um, I also have a song. This is going to blow people's mind. I got a song produced by Bumpy Knuckles, a.k.a. Freddie, Freddie Fox. Fox. Yeah, one of the nicest lyricists in the game. Definitely top 10 all time. Um, he's a great producer. So Freddie, he produced me, Chuck D., Ice T and DJ Jazzy Jeff on a song all together called Me and My Microphone. That's going to come out soon. And right now, in addition to America being up on all the um, streaming channels, I have a video. This song is called uh, Ghetto Metal, Ghetto Metal. And it's a follow up to King of Rock. I mean, it's a follow up to Rockbox, King of Rock, Walk This Way. And Ghetto Metal is showing you my heavy metal, rock and roll, hip hop influences. So that's out now. And um, the book, Daryl's Dream, is out right now. It's available wherever um, children's books are sold. And it's also available at Amazon.com slash YoungDMC. But also, the book is the first in a series of children's books. So it's going to be more. So more books. We got music out now with more music coming. That's amazing. DMC, I want to thank you for coming on the show here today. You're always welcome on. Thank you for what you did for hip hop. You're monumental. You're an icon. You changed the game and you changed hip hop forever. And we will continue to celebrate you and your legacy. Thank you for all that you you. do. Thank you. We're all in this together. Without you, I don't get hurt. So thank you. That's right. You're you're a true MC, a true pioneer. I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you to Tracy for setting this up as well. You're always welcome. I look forward to everything that you achieve in the future, man. I'll definitely come back on your show. It's, It's amazing. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that, DMC. It means a lot. I want you to enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Stay safe. Keep being an inspiration. I'll see you soon. See you soon.